You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on healthcare policy. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Congressman Mark Kirk. Congressman Kirk represents the 10th Congressional District of Illinois, located in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Now in his fourth term, Congressman Kirk is a member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee. He is also a Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer and the Vice Chair of the Congressional Diabetes Caucus. He also serves on the Congressional Kidney Caucus and the Biomedical Research Caucus. Welcome, Congressman Kirk. Thank you for having me. Congressman Kirk, recently there was a movie by Michael Moore that showed health care systems in different countries around the world. When we talk about health care policy in the United States and the health care crisis, what are your thoughts concerning this and the other programs that are in different countries? I think Michael Moore is a hardline polemic and someone who has a distinct view only shared by a certain fraction of the American people. When he lauds the Cuban healthcare system, he doesn't laud their human rights system, the fact that they haven't had an election for 40 years. He doesn't talk about how so many patients from around the world seek medical care in the United States, but we have very few Americans ever seeking to go abroad for medical care. When we talk about the health care crisis, what is it that makes it a crisis? Number one, uninsured Americans, 40 million uninsured Americans. But we have to look at who the uninsured are. American citizens, 65 and over, are insured. That's Medicare. Americans, poverty level and below, are also insured. That's Medicaid. So the uninsured are under 65 and above the poverty line. Large numbers of them are 20 and 30-year-olds working for small businesses. And that's the key group that I think Congress should address in expanding access to health care. Well, how should we expand access to health care? Number one, we should pass the state children's health insurance program currently pending in the Congress. I'm one of those independent Republican members of Congress that supports expanding SCHIP and will be voting to override the president's veto of that legislation. The bill can be understood in two basic forms. Number one, it covers 6 million additional lower-income kids. And number two, it raises the cost of a pack of cigarettes. More health care insurance for kids, less smoking. What's not to love? Secondly, I think we should expand the ability of small employers to provide catastrophic and low-cost insurance plans to their employees. There's a number of things we need to do to make that happen. We face significant obstacles in the Congress, but we should get started now. Well, with the president against that program, how do you think that things will proceed? I think if you look at the vote counts in the Congress right now, the Senate will override the president, uh, but the House, by a small margin, will not. At that point, the founding fathers expect us to sit down and hammer out a compromise. Everyone is for continuing the program. Everyone is for expanding it somewhat. So the total expansion of the program will be less than what the bill's authors want. In the end, the president will have to probably accept a program that's larger than what he wants. And what about for the adults? Well, for the adults, I think most importantly, we have to look at uh, small employers, especially employers of 50 employees and under, many of whom have dropped health care insurance for their employees. The best reform, in my view, that we can put forward is to authorize uh, national association health plans 
especially so that a small employer can get a stripped-down coverage plan from, for example, the Highland Park Chamber of Commerce. Or all of the alpha graphics in the country could band together with an association health plan. This is something that a number of small employers would like to do. Currently, it's illegal under federal law to have these kind of plans put together. Why is that? You have some political problems in the Congress for two reasons. One, health insurance and regulation is generally a state matter. And so having the federal government empowered to allow these national charters would override a number of state decisions. This is a national economy, though, and I think it's time for this reform to go forward. Secondly, we have some entrenched interests. The number of Americans joining a union has fallen considerably in the last 40 years. At one time, a third of Americans were part of a union. Now it's less than 12%. Big union leaders do not want association health plans authorized because this is one of the last reasons why any American actually joins a union. And if they could get their health care less expensively and more directly from their employer than their union, a number of the large labor leaders feel that their membership could fall even further. With that comes political power and influence, and they don't want that to happen. What should we do in terms of the patients who cannot get insurance through traditional insurance companies, cannot get insurance through their employer, and have to go to the emergency room actually for routine medical care? Under every state's law, they have to receive that care. This is the most expensive and inefficient way to deliver health care. But as a society, we have made this decision that health care is different than the provisions of other services. Even in veterinary care, we do not have the requirement that when a sick dog presents and is completely unable to pay, the vet is not required to render assistance. In healthcare, we've decided it is. In the real world, in the real economy then, what actually happens is cost shifting. And that's exactly how just about every major healthcare institution operates. Could you define that? Cost shifting is simply increasing the insurance rates on everybody who are paying to cover the uninsured people who present at the emergency room and get care. Is that right? In the long run, no. Although what I think is we need to foster better and better ways for people to have a direct relationship with a healthcare insurer and provider on their own rather than the other side of the equation, which is to have the government take over the entire system. We see every day the problems of a government-controlled health care system. Shortage, waiting lines, no access to care. I think the best way to make the American system work is simply to expand the affordability and access to health care insurance so that people get it on their own. And what about Medicare? Medicare is the ultimate social safety net, very much like Social Security, that for those Americans who worked hard, played by the rules for their whole life, they are going to be vulnerable. If we let the private market run entirely without a government subsidy, this is a very difficult group to insure. So I think it's very appropriate for a government subsidy to provide that health care insurance. The critical difference is, should it be a state-controlled system, as in other countries, or should it be like the way American seniors like Medicare today, which is the subsidy is standing behind the insurer, but you still have a direct relationship with your physician. And that, I think, in election after election, political leaders have found is the touchstone for our health care policy. 
1994, then First Lady Hillary Clinton put forward her plan, which was largely a government takeover of health care. In the long debate that followed, the famous Harry and Louise campaign outlined finally an understanding by a very large number of Americans that the key aspect of that 1994 plan was to rupture the relationship between you and your doctor. We had uh, one of the worst years ever for Democratic candidates being elected because they had embraced that plan. And to many seniors, those leaders represented an end to their direct relationship with their physician. Senator Clinton has learned a number of lessons in that. And I think the later versions of her plan try much more to protect that relationship between a senior and their doctor because mess with that and at the next election, you'll die at the polls. Are the insurance companies becoming too powerful? They are, but that is also because the role of the government in healthcare is becoming so huge. When we look at other markets providing other goods, antitrust policy and anti-monopoly policy can break up a provider who has too much market power. But in healthcare, the government is now such a large provider and Medicare is so dominant in setting prices that you're having tremendous distortion in the market now, which triggers inefficiencies. This is one of the only markets where the consumer is not ordering the good. It's their provider which is ordering the good for them. And in a situation where you can be sued very easily, you'll order every good on the planet to prepare for a defense of a lawsuit, which in a normal situation you probably wouldn't have done. Let's talk about our seniors. We know that the population is shifting, and we have many more seniors. And we know that most seniors in most assisted living and nursing homes have to pay out of pocket because Medicare covers very little of this, and special insurance has to be obtained. Yet in other countries, they're taken care of by the government or some other system. What should we do about this? The United States is aging very rapidly because of the baby boom generation. Actually, compared to several other countries, particularly Japan and China, we're aging much slower because there are very large younger cohorts behind them. But to care for the baby boom, you have some enormous stresses. I think one of the key principles that we should follow is that the government should do first what it has already promised to do before it makes new extravagant promises, which will later collapse in the middle of a program. For example, when Social Security was created, it set the magic date age 65. Franklin Roosevelt set that date because Otto von Bismarck, who was the first one to set this date, was told 99% of beneficiaries will be dead at age 65, so you can make this promise. The average Social Security recipient and someone later on Medicare got only 11 monthly checks before they died in 1940. Today, the average Social Security and Medicare recipient is alive 22 years. So not only are the size of retirees increasing, but the length of which they're depending on Social Security and Medicare are increasing. When you talk to the Congressional Budget Office, they will tell you the unfunded promise, the promise that has been made but for which no revenue has been found, already stands at over $30 trillion just to meet the promises that we've already made through Social Security, Income Security, and Medicare. A number of people say, well, then we should make some additional more expensive promises on top of that. But I worry 
one of the worst things that you can do to a senior is to promise them a federal program. They will restructure their own personal finances to take advantage of it. And then if three years later you run out of money and pull the rug out, you've broken a real bond of trust and disrupted their lives considerably. Better to have not made that promise at all. And the amount of money we need to keep Social Security and Medicare whole is already so huge it should take a considerable amount of our time and attention just to meet those commitments first. I want to thank Congressman Kirk, who has been our guest. We have been discussing health care in the United States. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment on health care on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.